I am Sarah Jane Case, and this is Enneagram and Coffee. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are talking with Abby Rodriguez. Abby is a certified Enneagram practitioner from the narrative tradition. Her work centers on partnering with people as they try to make sense of their lives and inviting them to take on a posture of curiosity about themselves and others. She teaches virtual workshop series, coaches individuals and couples, and facilitates custom workshops for organizations. Abby is also the host of the new podcast, Enneagram Coaching with Abby Rodriguez, and an educational Instagram page Enneagram Space. She is an IEA accredited Enneagram professional and has a master's in student development that supports her work. Abby resides in Nashville, Tennessee with her husband of 10 years and two preschool kiddos. Abby, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a joy being here. Yeah, I am so excited to get to chat with you. Uh, as you know, we start every episode with your rosebud and thorn. So what are yours today? Um, you know, I think my rose is just in general that it's the fall, um, having my kiddos back in school and actually having some set aside space to do my work rather than doing things in the evening is so wonderful. Um, Mm -hmm. but I also just, I'm a sucker for all the fall things like pumpkin spice and cool mornings and sweaters and scarves. I just, I love fall. Um, so that's my rose. And um, I think my thorn is uh, probably a little bit tied to that. Um, with going back to school, my my oldest loves school. I have a six year old, and um, and he's all about it. He's you know knows the drill. But my uh, three year old, almost four year old, does not always love school, and so sometimes it's a little bit hard at drop off. And it just is a hard way to start the day with kind of that emotional exchange of tears, and you know, and trying to empathize, but also letting her know it's going to be okay. So, um, you know, it's kind of been a practice for me and my, um, and my eightness to slow down enough to hear what she's saying rather than just trying to coach confidence. So that's, but it's a thorn. That's a hard thing that I have to navigate. And then I think my, um, my bud is, um, my husband and I had planned this surprise Disney vacation, uh, March of 2020 when the world shut down and, um, and we've been talking about trying to to replan it, um, which we were thankful that it was a surprise. So our kids didn't actually experience the disappointment that we experienced. Um, and so anyways, we've been talking with one of our friends as a travel agent trying to get that planned. And so it just feels fun and, um, you know, just feels like a, a fun thing on the horizon that we will do next spring at some point. So that's my that's my bed right now. I love that. You talked about um, with your kiddo, like not coaching confidence and just kind of staying present. And I think that's so hard to do. It's so hard not to like teach and so just be with. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's sometimes when it, it can feel like it gets in such a logical space of you know, I can offer all this logic of you're only here for five hours. You know, I'll come right after rest time. Sometimes I throw in Daniel Tiger of like grownups come back um, for all the parents. Mm -hmm. You definitely know what I'm talking about. Um, But also realizing, you know, even if there's some logic that I can put to it um, in this moment, she's afraid. And that's the emotion that she's experiencing. And she needs the grownup that can instill some, um, you know, confidence, but really through like support and comfort of like, yeah, this is hard. You know, it's hard to feel afraid and it's, it's hard to know, not know what's going to happen. And, um, and, and that's okay. You know, we, we can feel that way. And also we can do hard things in the midst of feeling that way, but you have to start with acknowledging that. Otherwise, you know, in my eightness, I just bulldoze her little emotions. Mm -hmm. That was like a really big, I feel like parenting is like the ultimate teacher to our journey. And I think one of the big moments for me in waking up was realizing that I, as my sevenness was just kind of like throwing up all over my kid being like, you know, he's sad. And I'm like, look at all that you have to be grateful for. Think about (laughs) all of the things you have to look forward to. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I I am doing to him what I do to myself. And neither of us deserve that. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you said that neither of us deserve that. I think there are so many moments with her, um, 
that I, I think for the first time I understand inner child work when I'm interacting with her. Um, because, you know, I had horrible separation anxiety from my mom when I was little. Like I always cried mm-hmm. going to school and, and even being an eight, right? I think sometimes mm-hmm. people have this persona of eight children being like, you know, the one that's like either the bully on the playground or taking on the bully on the playground. And I don't know that I was either of those. Um, mm-hmm. I was a really sensitive kiddo. But also in those moments realizing, you know, what I actually wanted in that space was for someone to say like, yeah, like, I understand that you're sad. I don't like that feeling either. That's really hard. It's, it's really scary mm-hmm. to, to feel this way, to, to not know what's coming. And then to also know someone's with you in it. And also like, and then we can take some steps forward too, despite the fact that we're scared. We don't forget or, or, you know, let go of and think happy thoughts. Um, we do these things in acknowledgement that we are scared and, or we are sad or whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, I mean, kids are incredible mirrors. Yeah. I think about that eight structure so often. I have a really strong eight wing and like, I think about how, when you're the strongest one in the room, I I imagine there's got to be like this desire. And I know I feel this desire at times where I just want someone to be stronger than me. I just want someone yeah. to be in the room who I feel like if you're stronger than me, then like I can just chill out. Mm-hmm. But if there's not someone in the room who's more powerful, then it's like, all right, here we go. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm carrying it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I think sometimes there's been spaces where I realize, oh, if I would have slowed down enough to realize there's actually other people would have stepped up, but I didn't mm-hmm. give enough pause to see their strength. They just look different than my strength. You know, it, it's more of yeah. a quiet strength or more of a um, warm, compassionate strength, not a like, let's charge ahead and we'll get through this kind of strength. Um, mm-hmm. But then there also are spaces where I feel like I'm intentional about pausing and nothing happens. And, and yeah, it feels like, uh, you know, this is the space that I step in, um, especially in a work environment. I used to work uh, full-time in an educational environment. And there were just times when it felt like I was like the bulldog, like, Hey, Abby will say something about this. So let's just like stick her on them and she can take care of it. Um, Mm -hmm. and yes, like there's a skill and a strength in some of that, but sometimes you just get exhausted, right? Like you don't, you don't always want to have to be the strong one. It feels like a real gift when someone takes that role for you. Yeah. It's interesting too, because I think when we're in relationship to people and they're used to us engaging in a certain way, it's almost like they, in, they validate our type structure for us. Like it's like, yeah, we're trying to work on getting out of a role, but the, the people in our lives are used to us playing that role. So then they're mm-hmm. like, Hey, we need you to play this role. Um, I saw like, this is so random, but I saw on like a a post recently that I I put up about how each type limits themselves. And there was one of the ones for type one is that they have to be the only adult in the room. And I saw someone comment and tag someone and say, we missed you because there wasn't any adults in the room. And that person was trying to give them a compliment. But what I saw was you're telling them they have to live into their type structure, but that's yeah. their role. That That's like solidifying their type structure almost. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I feel like this comes up a lot in, in like one-on-one coaching spaces, but we, it's almost like we teach people how to treat us poorly or how to reinforce our type, right? How to expect mm-hmm. certain things out of us. And so sometimes, you know, whether that is coming into a more healthy pattern or maybe even setting boundaries, it's almost like we have to reteach people how we want to be treated or, or how we want to step into a space or what we can and cannot do. Um, but that's really tricky because you're trying to figure that out. And then once you figure it out, then you have to articulate that well to people who may or may not receive that well. Right. And it's just, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, it's tricky. And I, and I would imagine, and this is going to segue us into kind of what we plan to talk about today, but I would imagine based on your stance, if you're assertive, compliant or withdrawing, like the way that you navigate these transitions and the way you navigate these relationships are going to look so differently. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Hmm. And it's, so let's talk a little bit about, um, kind of what the differences can be. I know we're here to talk about strengths and blind spots in stances, um, So let's do like a quick, just if 
If people have never heard of stances before in the Enneagram, we have a lot of new Enneagram newbies here. Can you give a brief overview of like what stances are and then how we're going to talk about them in terms of relationship? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, the Enneagram is really triadic. There's lots of groups of threes uh, that you find between the nine numbers and stances are another group of three. So there um, are three stances that each of the nine numbers fall into one of them. And um, so the assertive stance, sometimes it's called the aggressive stance. Um, general people seem to get hot and bothered by that name. So I've started using the assertive stance. Um, and then there is the, so assertive stance is threes, sevens, and eights. Um, and then there are uh, the dutiful stance, sometimes it's called the compliant stance or the dependent stance. Um, different authors kind of give them different names, but um, that includes uh, ones, twos, and sixes. And then the last stance is almost always called the withdrawn stance. No one else has come up with a better name than that. So um, that includes fours, fives, and nines. And so for these three stances, um, they are tied to an orientation to time, either future, past, or present. Um, they have to do with how you move through the world to get your needs met. Um, and, and they also uh, tie to a center of intelligence that is least naturally used for you. Um, and, and a lot of that work was really discovered by um, Hurley and Dobson. I don't know if, if you've read any of the work with the, uh, it's called My Best Self. It's an older Enneagram book, came out in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, so it, there's a lot of work that you can do with it but it, it drastically affects relationships. It causes a lot of the miscommunications and tensions that people experience in relationships. Mm. And Abby gave an absolutely perfect description of this, like stances. So you probably, like, honestly, you laid it out perfectly. If you do want to go deeper, we do have an episode specifically on stances. So if that piques your interest, we can, you guys can grab that after this episode. But um, yeah, you nailed that description perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when it comes to assertive stances, let's talk about like, what are assertive types great at in relationship? Yeah. So assertive stance, again, that's three, sevens, and eights. Um, you know, and for them, they have more of a future orientation. So it's kind of anticipating the next thing or a goal for the next thing, or maybe even, um, you know, what's the next challenge that we're going to take on. Sometimes it's not even... Um, you know, it, it can be like a struggle even, but it's the next thing that what are we moving towards? And that future orientation can offer in relationships, really this gift of being big picture thinkers. You know, sometimes when you are, uh, have all these responsibilities and you got to get things done with the kids and you're, you're trying to get, you know, whatever is the bills in the house and all these things done, it can be really hard to look up from the present week or month and look into the future of, you know, what do we want our family to be in 10 years from now? Or do we want to live in this city in 15 years from now? Is this where we want our kiddos to go to high school? Or is this where we want to raise a family or whatever it might be? Um, you know, assertive stance is really good about anticipating in the future, like what could be and inviting other stances that are not oriented that way to kind of daydream or imagine or set some goals for themselves or, um, or even have some confidence about what is coming in the future. And, you know, these big dreams that really could be, and that can be a real gift for other stances. Mm. Honestly, that's making me feel a little bit emotional. I think because as an assertive type, I feel like relationships are where I, t I have traditionally struggled the most and like work I've got, like me and worker, we have a really good relationship, <laughs> but like with, <laughs> in romantic relationships, it's been a struggle. And in that is something that we bring to the table. I think we do have such an ability to see possibility and to give people belief in what we can do and where we can go. Um, that feels, yeah, that like was good for me to hear. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And and I think along with that, in addition to, you know, where could we go and where could we be heading? You know, one of the other gifts the assertive stance brings into that is that they have a lot of um, momentum and at their best, they can bring you along with them or at least even um, cheer you on to keep going. You know, it's mm -hmm. almost like if they are cognizant of it, 
um, they can they can extend their momentum and their strength or enthusiasm or inspiration to you and be either your biggest cheerleader or kind of hold hands and walk with you um, and really pull people out of spaces where they kind of got stuck or maybe they really needed a cheerleader for a season because things just got hard and it was hard to see past um, you know their dead end job or this really suffocating relationship or whatever it is. Um, and so there's a lot of empowerment that can happen and that, that momentum and that confidence that the assertive scenes can, can offer in relationships when they're, when they're cognizant of that and they're not just pulling people along. Mm. So what do we have to work on? (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) the gifts of our stance are, are often our blind spots too. Um, Mm. you know, Susan Sibiel says the best part of you is often the worst part of you. And, and I think, um, those gifts can also get us into some trouble when they're happening on autopilot and we're not cognizant of them. Mm-hmm. So that big picture thinking, that future orientation um, can be really helpful if you are bringing people along with you. If though that uh, space is just your anticipation of the next excitement or your goal that you're setting or um, you know your hustle and hustle and taking on these challenges, but you're not really bringing people in relationship with you, um, it can kind of feel like whiplash to other people because all mm. of a sudden these quick decisions are being made and that affects them. And they had no idea we were even really talking about moving or talking yeah. about saying yes to this big project at work or whatever it is. Um, you know, my husband and I are both in the assertive stance. He leads with pipe seven. And one of the things that we talked about when we figured out our numbers and, and stances was that we were going to have to be really intentional um, about slowing down for our children. Otherwise, mm. their entire childhood was going to feel like whiplash. Um, mm. And so it, it's a constant reminder. There's moments when one of us will see the other one running and we kind of call the other person back and vice versa. Um, and, but it's a, it's a very intentional posture that had we not had the Enneagram and known we were both in the same stance, I don't know that we would have ever naturally figured it out. Yeah. I know my husband can say there's a big difference in me inviting him along and me dragging him along. Like me saying like, this is what we're doing. This is where we're going. This is the plan versus what if we did this? How do you feel about that? What can we talk through the things that we can, that could go wrong or the things that we could think about? Like there's a big difference in energy. Yeah. Yeah, Mm. for sure. And that's the thing that's so crazy about it is on the outside to other people that are not a part of that relationship, it can look exactly the same between you being present and mindful with your spouse, as opposed to you pulling him along in that example. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the two of you that are a part of that relationship, it's monumentally different. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, just, yeah, it feels a lot different, you know, and, and the other piece of the assertive stance that they have to be mindful of this, um, you know, it's, it's not even just about the forward momentum, but also, you know, the gift of them being able to empower and kind of offer Um, you know, their confidence or be a cheerleader or kind of coach you through things, they have to be mindful in that, in that same breath that they are acknowledging what's happening for that other person and not just trying to coach them. Um, Mm. You know, even back to our conversation about my kiddo going to school, you know, in in some moments I totally messed this up and, and I'm not paying attention and other moments I do better. Um, But it's not just about coaching confidence. It's also about acknowledging like, oh, they're really scared or, they feel really um, embarrassed about what just happened. You know, they can't just get over it with positivity. Like there's a hurt there that they need some space to process and and let it breathe and be um, Mm -hmm. before we try to move them out of that space before they're ready. And so um, just another piece that that the assertive stance has to be mindful of. You can't rush emotions. Um, You got to give space for them. You got to let them catch up to you in this situation. Yeah. And I think like our society really rewards the assertive kind of posture of like get things done, productivity, future oriented belief. And but it doesn't really honor the grief and and why you had to become that and like who, you know, where you were not, you know, where many of us were not given the opportunity or the space to feel our emotion. So it's such a gift to be able to give that to our kids to almost rework the patterns that we've built so that we can give our kids the slowness that they deserve. 
Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, like kids can be incredible mirrors into what you actually needed as a child, especially if, if you were in that space where there was kind of like, yeah, this is the list of things that we do and here's the hustle and we're busy and we're involved in all these things, you know, offering that kindness of, um, and, and also even just curiosity about your kiddos, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, my three-year-old, I don't know what her Instagram type is, right? Like we're still letting yeah. that unfold. Um, and even my six-year-old, I have a strong suspicion, but I hold that very loosely. Um, mm-hmm. But the Enneagram can invite you to be incredibly curious about your kids, right? You know, when my my son says, I don't want to go do this thing, when my husband and I are thinking like, this is going to be so fun, it invites that curiosity of like, maybe he's a homebody, right? Maybe he's mm-hmm. more of the, you know, a different stance, maybe in the withdrawn stance. And like, we are just rushing him, and rushing him. Um, so whether that's feelings or even just needing some alone time, right? Just being more curious about what's going on. Mm. Okay. So what about our uh, compliant types? Yeah. So um, I would say, you know, one of the gifts that the compliant types, again, that's our ones, twos, and sixes. Um, one of the gifts that they bring into the world is that they have an incredible awareness of um, what is needed around them, what is expected, what is helpful, um, what we should avoid for us to make our way in the world. Again, it's going to look a little different between those ones, twos, and sixes. Um, but that awareness is what really helps us, whether that's in one-on-one relationship or in groups that they're a part of, um, to grow and to improve and to take care of one another's, right? There's, there's kind of this attention to um, what is happening in the moment. They're, they're much more present oriented than future oriented. And we need that, right? We need someone that's holding things together and kind of the glue that's holding this group or our family or our neighborhood or faith community, whatever it is. Um, we need someone that's paying attention to what is needed and expected and how people are doing. Um, and the compliance stance is incredibly attuned to that. Mm. And what, what kind of gets them tripped up? Yeah. So (laughs) the same thing gets them tripped up. Um, you know, that strong awareness of what is expected, what is needed, how are people doing? What are the concerns we need to be paying attention to or avoiding, um, it creates a lot of internal chatter for the, for those three types. Um, you know, it's the, the replaying a scenario after it happened, or, um, you know, that internal chatter can be the inner critic that's berating and giving you lots of shoulds and oughts. Um, or it can be sorting through everyone's feelings and how they're doing and how our relationships are. Right. It's, it's a lot of like sorting through this information. That's, um, it creates a lot of internal chatter and that, Chatter can be really exhausting for those three types. Um, it can create a lot of anxiety or insecurity for them. Um, but it also has, so it's exhausting for them, but then it also can have an effect on their relationships because sometimes, and as they're sorting through all the information, um, you know, they can kind of fill in the blanks or read between the lines things in relationships that just aren't there. Mm. Or they need to give their partner more space to speak what's happening for them rather than having a one-sided in their mind conversation about everything and not giving their partner some space or, or their friend or, you know, coworker, right? The relationships go everywhere, um, mm-hmm. but not giving them some space to kind of clarify, oh, actually, this is what was happening. Like, I'm sorry I came off that way. Like, that wasn't my intention. Um, and so mm-hmm. that internal chatter can, can take them down a rabbit hole and um, that can be really hard to work your way back out of in a relationship. It's interesting how like it's, yeah, it is like, it's almost like they're playing a game of um, like mind reading, like on both yeah. sides, like I can read your mind and anticipate what's needed, but also I can read your mind and assume what you're experiencing about me. And and kind of almost like, I i don't know if you, you feel this way or kind of experience this, but um, there's almost a sense too that they want other people to be able to read their minds and just yeah. do what they think is supposed to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some like, cool. for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think um, it, even in that, in the um, anticipation, the guessing, the 
um, trying to sort things out, trying to interpret, uh, it just costs a lot of energy too. You know, even outside of the relationship bounds, um, it's really exhausting for those three numbers. I mean, I feel like in one-on-one coaching, this aspect comes up a lot of like, I'm exhausted by my type and I don't know what to do. Um, and has a lot to do with this internal chatter. Mm. All right. What about our withdrawing types? Yeah. So um, one of the gifts that the withdrawn um, stance brings into relationships. So again, that's our fours, fives, and nines. You know, they have um, this ability to hold space for kind of the gray area um, because there is not as much of a need to uh, be decisive, to act quickly, to um, take things on, to conquer whatever. Uh, there's more of a, a space to kind of listen and observe and be curious about, or even to just not have an opinion about, right? Like sometimes we always feel like, oh, this new thing came up. I need to figure out what my opinion is. And sometimes mm. there's there's this gift in just being curious and, and kind of a humble posture of, yeah, like I have some thoughts about that, or I have a response to that, but I don't have the answer to that, right? Or this is where I'm landing on that. Um, and I think because for these three types, they have such a strong inner world, um, there's more space to be okay with the ambiguity. Um, and in relationships, that really offers this gift of being okay with your ambiguity. When you are not sure, when you feel like a contradiction, when you feel like um, things are deconstructing in your world, they're really good at kind of holding some curious space for that, whether that is your intellectual thoughts, whether that is your emotions around that feeling like, yeah, like I feel like a total mess, but I feel really comfortable being in your space because there's just not a lot of judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being in that thinking space before you pull it or even emotion space before you pull it into doing, um, it can offer a lot of like welcoming space and hospitality for us that we, we need in relationships. We need that. Mm. I thought about um, my type nine friend of mine who um, we kind of talked about like what we like about our friendship is it's kind of like a yes and like in terms of when you have thoughts and opinions. So like I can share with him a really strong opinion and he'll just go, oh, I see that. And da, 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 da. And we're never really like cutting each other off or closing each other. It's just kind of like a continuation and an acceptance. And I feel like that is kind of, I get that from my four husband as well. Like that sensation of, okay, here's that. And let's explore something else. And yeah. it just kind of keeps flowing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, especially for assertive types, I think we forget how much of a gift it is when people just listen, Mm. even if they don't have the answers, even if they don't have a thought provoking question, right? Like their participation is just holding space and non anxious presence that's listening and witnessing you, you know, witnessing you as you are falling, you know, into whatever this emotion is or sorting through something or whatever it might Mm. be. Um, gosh, there's just so much power in, in witnessing someone's experience and being present with them and that. Mm. And with John Sands, they can offer that gift when they're at their best. Yeah, that's interesting because that reminds me of a conversation I had with a type five, probably like five years ago. Like um, the one of the first interviews I ever did with a type five. And I had kind of assumed at the time that as a five, like you have difficulty expressing your emotions I had thought like, well, you must have difficulty with other people's emotions. And he was like, mm-hmm. actually, I feel like I just let people writhe. Like he's like, I think the gift I bring as a parent is that like my kid can be as emotional as they need to be and I'm not shaken. Mm-hmm. And I thought like, oh, that is like a true gift that fives bring as, as I've gotten to, you know, more into the Enneagram and met more and more people who identify as five. It's like, yeah, you just kind of it's okay. Everything's okay here. Like yeah. there's no fixing. Yeah. Yeah, mm. for sure. And especially when they can make that choice to, it's not this like detachment that's happening as a default autopilot, but it's a intention of I'm here, I'm present with you and I'm choosing to not get swept up into this while I bear witness to what's happening for you. Mm. So where can our withdrawing types pay a little closer attention. Yeah. So 
one of the things that happens uh, for withdrawing types is that um, sometimes things in relationships are um, they're moving too quickly or there's too many decisions that are being made or maybe things feel too chaotic or too crazy or there's too much potential for conflict. And so they choose to not participate. And in that, um, that feels like a really neutral thing of like, oh, I'll just stay out of this big debate with our teenage daughter and I won't choose sides. So that's helpful because I'm Switzerland or I will um, you know, not give my opinion about where our kiddos go to school so that my spouse can can do that. And I'm not adding to the conflict of that because I think it'll just turn into a fight, right? It feels like those are really neutral um, responses. But the problem is people want you to participate. You know, they're mm-hmm. in relationship with you because they want your thoughts and your ideas and they want to know how you're feeling and they want to know what you think they should do. Um, and And it can be really hard to feel like you're having those moments where it's almost like a one-sided, like I'm the only one that's feeling or doing or helping or taking charge and deciding, um, it can feel really lonely, even though the withdrawn stance person is right there. Um, mm-hmm. and so it's helpful for them to be cognizant of, uh, that yes, it is helpful to not, you know, get all whipped up and out of control and whatever, um, to be reactive, right. That's, that's helpful to not be so reactive, but, People want you to participate. They want you to be a part of it with them. Um, And especially, you know, if you withdraw away, uh, whether that's because you need more time to sort through your feelings about something or your thoughts or you're just, you know, there's too much tension going on. Um, If you don't let people know where you're going and when you're coming back to that conversation, it kind of invites even more intrusion because it's, Mm -hmm. you've just completely checked out. Um, and so the very thing that you were trying to go get time away, privacy, whatever, um, you're inviting even more intrusion and that can be really hurtful in relationships because, um, they feel like they're intruding or nagging you. You are trying to get that need met of kind of withdrawing away. Um, and and that can cause a lot of confusion, but also just hurt because it feels like you don't care or you don't want to be involved or, um, you don't have any feelings or, or thoughts around it, but you actually do. And so that's another thing to pay attention to for for the withdrawn stance. Yeah. And I think about the idea of kind of checking out and it reminded me of this book that our kiddo has called, um, this is what would happen if everybody did, where it's like, if everybody picked a flower, then there wouldn't be any flowers. If everybody tracked mud into the house and the house would be covered in mud. And it's kind of like, if everybody checks out, then the bills don't get paid. If everybody checks out, then no one goes anywhere. Nothing gets done. And it's almost the luxury. It's a luxury in some sense to withdraw because it means someone else will pick up the slack. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And and I also love that book. I feel like I need to get the name of that from you. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But, but yes. And I think that also illuminates why you really need the energy of all three of these stances. You know, when I teach about stances in workshops, often people like they have these, what I always call like the embarrassed laugh where they like kind of chuckle, but they're actually a little bit embarrassed about what was just openly said about them. And now they're offered a space to respond. Um, But after you hear all three stances, you realize like, oh, we actually need the energy of all three of these in our relationship, right? Mm -hmm. None of them are inherently bad. None of them are inherently the best. Um, they all have incredible gifts and some of these things we have to balance out. Um, we need all of them to show up. Yeah. And I, I feel like just, you know, in the Enneagram, when we talk about these centers, when we talk about like heart, head and gut, there's, you know, this, the, a lot of us talk about the practice of balancing those centers out, not just living in one center. And I feel like it could be helpful to do the same with stances, like to, Um, exercise the practice within ourselves of what part of me can withdraw, what part of me can be compliant, um, what part of me can be assertive, and how can I bring that to the table um, as well? Yeah, for sure. One part of what, um, you know, we even talk about with stances. So for each of those stances, there's a center of intelligence that is um, naturally underutilized for you. So Mm -hmm. for Um, for the assertive stance, that heart center, the feeling intelligence is underutilized. 
for the withdrawn stance, um, the body triad or um, that uh, doing intelligence is underutilized. And then for the uh, compliant or dutiful stance, um, it's the productive thinking is underutilized. And so for um, each of those three stances, there's an invitation there to kind of balance it out by bringing in that repressed center of intelligence. And so that can be a real gift and a real um, helpful way to kind of think through if I balance out this repressed center of intelligence, um, that's a way for me to naturally bring in all three of these stances, the gifts of all three stances. Mm -hmm. Today's podcast is brought to you by Flex. There came a day where all of a sudden I loved to talk about my menstrual cycle. For my whole life, I felt like this is something that I'm not allowed to talk about, I'm not supposed to discuss. And I will tell you that the moment it switched was the moment that I changed up my period care products. Using tampons and pads, it actually sucked. But for so many years, I didn't know. I didn't know what options were out there. I thought that there was just the normal that I knew and I thought, oh, I'm always gonna have to keep products like locked and loaded in my bag. I'm gonna have to put all of this waste into the environment. I'm gonna have to fill trash cans up with like period waste. Things that like actually aren't even a part of my life anymore. If you want a period product that looks out for your body, your lifestyle, and the planet, you have got to try Flex. Flex is innovating period care with products that are body safe, made for comfort, and made to keep you moving. There's the Flex Disc, which is a one-time use menstrual disc that fits perfectly inside your body. One Flex Disc can be worn for up to 12 hours and holds as much flow as three super-sized tampons. It's not a cup and it's better than a tampon. It's unlike any other period product that you have seen before. It's basically a round circle that's very flexible and it has kind of a cup-ish type thing in the center and it collects your menstrual blood instead of absorbing it so that you can easily just flush it down the toilet instead of filling up your trash can with it. Plus, you can wear it for mess-free period sex. Your white sheets are gonna thank you for that. Flex discs also create 60% less waste compared to pads and tampons. So yes, you can consider using your Flex your environmental good deed. If you wanna go zero waste and have the planet love you even more, pick up the Flex Cup, my personal favorite, a reusable menstrual cup that Cosmo rated number one. The patented pull tab makes Flex the only cup on the market that removes like a tampon, so it's so easy, you already know how to use it. It's disability friendly and made with beginners in mind. It's velvety soft, completely body safe, and lasts for years. The cup is the thing for me. Here's the deal. You put it in the morning. You do not have to think about your period all day long. I am not kidding you. You take it out at night. Then you put it back in. You're good all night long. Y'all, it is absolutely life-changing. With helpful videos, in-depth diagrams, gifts, and flexperts available to walk you through the entire process, you'll never go back to products from the past once you try Flex. So say goodbye to cramps, put sex back on the table, and lend Mother Nature a hand. Go to flexfits.com egram and use code egram for 20% off Flex Disc Starter Kits or 10% off your first Flex Cup plus free U.S. shipping. That's egram at flex, F-L-E-X, fits.com slash egram. Thank you, Flex, for supporting today's podcast. All right, so I'm curious. Let's, let's kind of close with a little tip. If we are wanting to kind of balance out these centers, what could an assertive type do to get in touch with our heart and so on? Yeah. So starting with the assertive stance, um, you know, the that center of intelligence of, of feeling, it shows up very differently between threes, sevens, and eights, of course, because you're very different numbers. Um, but having some practices or space or even communities that are encouraging you to take time to check in with yourself about how you're feeling. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I come from the narrative tradition of the Enneagram and we 
pair somatic work with Enneagram work. And that has been monumentally helpful for me, specifically as an eight, because I had so little access to what I was feeling other than anger and until it kind of compiled and exploded, you know, like Mm -hmm. once I was in my kitchen crying, then I realized I was like overwhelmed and sad. Um, But I couldn't tell before it had compiled to then be overflowing or it showed up as anger. But Mm -hmm. with somatic practices, which, which is just acknowledging the felt sense of your experience, you know, so when you're nervous and we might describe that we have butterflies in our stomach, that's our felt sense. We, we feel that in our our system. And so for me, um, I have a daily practice, um, it's called centering prayer. So I sit in silence for 20 minutes and, um, and that's part of my faith tradition too, of, of abiding and consenting to the presence of God. But it is also a practice of increasing my awareness and my receptivity to what is happening around me, including my feelings. And Mm. so now for me, I um, will check in or have these moments when I notice, oh, like my neck is really tight or or I kind of have uh, this butterfly feeling in my stomach or or maybe even a, a buzzing sensation at the end of my fingertips. And then I realize, oh, I'm nervous. And for some Mm. people that feels crazy because it's like, how could you ever not realize that you were nervous? But my type eight structure, you know, when my defense mechanism of denial comes online, it just filters things out that make me feel weak. And Mm -hmm. so somatic practices of of noticing my felt sense has been a, a total gateway into noticing my emotions, but it could be other things, right? It could be having a space with a group of friends that check in with, with your feelings and you honor that question rather than blowing it off or having a practitioner, mm. having a, um, you know, a spiritual director, whatever it is, having some rhythm, some spaces, some practices that give you the ability to check in with your emotions and, and how you're doing with that for the assertive stance. Mm. Yeah. And I, I love that so much. And one of the practices that I do is every day I journal and in the journal, I'll just ask myself, what am I feeling? And because I, and it's like embarrassing how often I didn't know, like I'll write it out and I can like, and I think it is like, I go through my body. Like, I'll just be like, what is my body feeling right now? And then that can tell me what my heart's experiencing. But like, I don't, sometimes I'll be like, oh, I'm actually stressed. And I will just mm-hmm. have not had any any connection to that at all until I just pause and ask the question. So I, that's so good. What about our compliant types? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So for compliant types, um, you know, balancing out the three centers, what that means for you is kind of this invitation uh, to bring productive thinking into the equation. And so what happens for these three types is that they – um, feel something and then go do something about that, or they do something and then maybe have feelings about it that they acknowledge or repress, right? They kind of just get shoved down and there's not space to deal with them, but it, it becomes this, um, loop between feeling and doing and doing and feeling. And if they're not intentional about bringing productive thinking into the equation, um, they'll just get stuck in that cycle. And so productive thinking or analytical thinking, logical thinking, it can look different depending on what's going on for you. Um, but giving yourself some space to calm down that internal chatter, um, again, contemplative practices are really helpful for that. I think I'm going to forever be like a billboard for contemplative practices because it's just completely transformed the way that I show up in my my life and my relationships and my Enneagram work. Um, But having some practices that you are uh, silencing that internal chatter. So that could be a guided meditation where you are listening to the voice of the practitioner. Um, there are tons of free meditations um, on different apps. Insight Timer is the one that I use that I really like. Um, but same, having a same. practice where um, where you are slowing down enough to listen uh, and also taking the thought process towards what is being spoken to you and not the internal chatter. Um, Mm. And that helps then in these moments when you are synthesizing through a bunch of information or you are getting caught up in how everyone's doing or what they're feeling or all these things. um, It's almost like you have trained your mind to be able to cut down on some of the internal chatter so that you can sense okay, what do I actually think about this? What do I actually need? What do I actually value in this space? Um, And also what have they 
actually said to me? Did they say, I hate you and you're not invited to this? No, I don't. They didn't, right? They just had weird nonverbals and then they were talking about something in hushed voices. Maybe that had nothing to do with me. Maybe it was like a really intimate private thing, right? So again, we reading between the lines in some spaces, but that's an invitation to bring um, that thinking center, that head center online more and that space to balance it out. Mm, love. Okay. What about our withdrawing types? So for our, our withdrawing stance, um, the center of intelligence that's at least naturally used is that doing intelligence or, um, you know, it's the body center, it's that gut instinctual intelligence. And so the invitation for those in the withdrawn stance, as things are coming up and you are kind of retreating into your inner world, whether that is into your thoughts, into reminiscing, or even just checking out and zoning out, um, to consider what might the, what might need done in this space? What might be um, the actions that I could take to help with what's going on rather than just observing it or withdrawing away from it? Um, is there something that I can offer? And it doesn't have to even be like physical actions. Sometimes that doing is just speaking up and saying like, hey, I, I actually see it from this perspective, even though that might cause confrontation or offering, you know, maybe our, our child is not doomed because they got detention. Maybe this is happening and, and we could support them in this way, right? So just speaking up their thoughts or feelings and also maybe taking action, right? Helping mm -hmm. with something or going um, and observing what your spouse who maybe is doing dominant is doing all the time and then taking some of those things off their plate, right? Um, that could be a gift or a kindness that you offer. But in general, having some rhythms, having some spaces where you consider um, what action do I need to take in this? Um, and what agency do I need to have rather than just observing the world around me happen? Because you are a part of the world too. Mm -hmm. You are part of the world too. It's so powerful. Yeah. It's true. And like you matter, like your presence matters. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, are you ready for rapid fire questions? <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm as ready as I'm going to be. <laughs> okay. This is my favorite part. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. What is the first book that comes to mind? Um, the first book that comes to mind is probably just the book I'm reading right now. Um, the body keeps the score. I don't know if you've read that book. Mm -hmm. So yeah. good. And it's taking me a while to get through it. Um, because I, I, I read usually a book a month. Um, I'm, have become more of an avid reader in COVID, but I, mm -hmm. um, I keep taking breaks and I think it's because the book is just kind of overwhelming if I'm being mm -hmm. honest. Um, and so trying to be mindful that I'm not, you know, sheer willpower in my eightness bulldozing through it, <laughs> but like allowing myself to, um, process the emotions that are coming up for me as I read it and kind of the, you know, secondhand triggering as you read mm -hmm. the stories. Um, but it's, it's so good. It's just so helpful with regards to, mm -hmm. um, trauma and how that shows up in our body and in our emotions and in our mind. Mm -hmm. What about a favorite song? Um, <laughs> so music questions are always, uh, bad because I feel like I become the most lame person ever. I really don't <laughs> listen to a lot of music, um, which is kind of a travesty because I live in Nashville music city. Um, but if I have like spaces where normal people would listen to music, I prefer silence um, or a podcast or audiobook. So my answer is <laughs> I don't really have a favorite song. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so fun fact, I'm the same and I actually don't, well, I don't like, I'll forget music exists. I'll be like, oh, maybe I could listen to music today. <laughs> um, and it, people think it's weird, but I, it, it is silence is just nice. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Something you wish people knew about you? I think that answer would probably be different depending on who the people are, like what group of people in my life. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm i a self-preservation eight, which means I have a lot of five tendencies. So I tend to compartmentalize without realizing it. But um, as far as the Enneagram world, I, I think the first thing that comes to mind is that um, – I realized recently I don't talk a lot about my faith in my um, Enneagram Insta Instagram account or on my podcast or in my workshops. And um, and that's really in some ways kind of contradictory to like my faith is a really essential piece of me and it's um, and I uh, it's really important to me. But I 
realize that I don't talk about it a lot because I don't really want to be held to be an expert in my faith. Like Mm -hmm. if, you know, I will, um, I will integrate it and talk through it as people bring those things up to me in coaching spaces. Um, but I think I, I don't ever want to be like, oh, you have tied the Enneagram and Christianity together. And so now you are an expert on Christianity. So I think that's something that I realized like, oh, I actually want people to know that about me. Um, but it's not super obvious if you if you see me in a public like profile setting. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, your dream day, what are you doing? Oh man. Um, my husband and I lived in uh, Colorado for a year. And if I could just like go back and like do the things that we loved doing there together prior to kiddos, um, that would be a dream day. Like seeing the people Mm -hmm. that we love and, you know, like, yeah, going to the places that we loved, going hiking, doing those things. Um, that would be a gift. Mm. Your final meal. What are you eating? Oh, I would definitely eat um, my mother's like home cooking for what she makes for Thanksgiving. Um, she's like an incredible cook, but whenever it's like a special holiday, she will make homemade egg noodles with like um, like chicken bone broth, and it is just so so good. Oh, that sounds so comforting. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, a little food for thought, like something that people can leave today, just keeping in mind or pondering on. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, um, yeah, I think maybe my food for thought is just to be more curious. Um, you know, one of the things that I will often say in my workshops is that I believe the world would be a better place if we were all just a bit more curious, curious about ourselves and and what's showing up for us and, and why we are showing up that way. But then also just curious about others rather than assuming that we know. Um, I think there's so much empathy and kindness that can come from truly being curious and listening and wondering and observing um, rather than just assuming we know why they're doing the things they're doing or showing up the way they are. Mm. And finally, where can we keep in touch? Where can we find you online? Keep up with your work. Yeah. Um, so if you're on Instagram, an easy place to connect with me is just there. It's Enneagram space. And then, um, my website is Abby Rodriguez, all is one word. And I spell Abby, A-B-B-I. And there's a thousand ways to spell Abby, (laughs) but that's my version of it. Um, and then I also have a podcast I just started this fall, which has been, um, a lot of fun. Uh, one of my friends is producing it, Garrett Masowski, and that's just been a lot of fun to do that with him. Um, but it's Enneagram coaching with Abby. And so that's a really uh, good way to connect with me too. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Abby. This was so fun. Yeah. It was fun to chat with you and and thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.